invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the birth of Jesus as announced by Gabriel, recorded in Luke. We're going to read verses 26 through 33. It can also be found printed in your bulletin, I believe on page 6. Luke chapter 1, verses 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we seek to understand his word. Father God, we thank you for this Sunday, for this time of year. Specifically, this first Sunday in Advent, we're reminded of the hope that we have because of Christ, our King and his kingdom that is here and is still yet to come. God, would you open our minds by your spirit to your word. May our hope be renewed, may it be restored, may it grow all the more as a result of our time in your word this morning. Revive us by your word, strengthen us by your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Can we really declare that Jesus Christ is the hope of all the earth? I ask for reasons besides the fact that the title of this sermon is Hope of All the Earth. Earlier in the service, we sang, hopefully with confidence, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus in which we together confessed Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. In any era, this confession is a bold, even controversial statement to make. If I were to poll people from all over the globe, I doubt I would find the majority to be in agreement. For many today, the hope of all the earth might best be in the form of a vaccine, a return to normalcy, a consistent supply of water and food. Hope of all the earth might be a new leader, the end of war, or a greener future. Longing for Jesus is not at the top of most lists. Sadly, I must confess, it is not the top of my list as often as it should be. When Charles Wesley wrote the words of this hymn in 1744, the conditions in his own day were not that different. Very few would have given a resounding yes to Jesus as the hope of all the earth. Originally, those words were penned as a prayer as Wesley sat reflecting on the words of Haggai 2.7 while looking at the conditions of his day. History records that the mid to late 18th century in Great Britain offered very little in hope. 
Orphans, many of them in abject poverty, roamed the streets. Some of them, many of them, united in gangs committed to violence and crime. Others moved from stay to stay in orphanages that simply could not provide food or a place to sleep. For context, if you've ever read Dickens' book, Oliver Twist, that is set in 18th century Great Britain. And on top of that, the nation itself was fiercely divided. Citizens fought and split over religious reasons, ethnic reasons, political, socioeconomic status. Tensions were high, hope was low. And Wesley wrote this prayer intending it to encourage himself to remember Christ's first advent while also looking forward to his second. He later put it to music, hoping that others would find that same encouragement. In that world, stricken by poverty, division, hopelessness, the words hope of all the earth stuck out. They served as both a statement of the truth and also an invitation to come and see for yourself. And it is the same today. True and lasting hope is proclaimed where little hope is found or even offered. Now, obviously, this is not because these words are simply the words of some gifted hymn writer of days gone by. It is because they reflect the truth proclaimed as we just read in Luke chapter 1. They are the words connected to the announcement of Christ's coming. We see that all the hopes and longings of our souls and those in this world find their satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom. Now we're not going to dive into this entire announcement narrative. Our time is going to be spent simply on verses 31 through 33. For here we find clear signs that point to Jesus as the hope of all the earth. The outline is printed in page 8 of the bulletin. In this small snapshot, we see the proclaimed hope. First, that God will show kindness. Second, that God will provide his king. And then third, that God will establish his kingdom. And I pray that each of these will fill us with hope, not just this morning, not just in another Advent season that has come upon us, but for each and every season that we face until Jesus Christ, the hope of all the earth, comes again. We see that the announcement starts with the hope that God will show kindness. God has not forgotten his people. He has not abandoned them or left them without hope in this world. No, he tells through Gabriel he is about to come to them with compassion and kindness. Kindness, while not often shouted from the rooftops or always recognized, is something we all hope for. It is something even our world desires. One famous pop star has actually said, kindness heals people. It is what brings us together. It is what keeps us healthy. This is about as hopeful a statement this world will offer about the hope of kindness. People hope that kindness will lead to restoration, will lead to joy. This is why there is a national show kindness day. I don't know what day that is. You can Google that later. 
It is also why random acts of kindness are probably the most popular social media videos out there. People love to see records of people just showing kindness to others on the streets. Because we long to see it. We long for kindness, whether we are the direct recipients of it or not. And while commendable, such hope in human kindness is ultimately misplaced. Because only the kindness of God can do the things that this pop star hopes kindness will do. And Gabriel announces to Mary that the kindness of God has come. And she receives the first taste of it. Listen to what he tells her at the end of verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Mary is told explicitly that she is the object of God's grace, of his kindness, his unmerited favor. Such grace is not based on anything that she has done, or as some would argue, some innate purity that was already inside of her. It, cares whether, it does not care whether or not she is lovely or shows potential. And naturally, this fits with how God has always operated, by grace. Because way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he specifically told his people, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore. Mary was no different than Israel. She was weak, especially in that culture, and especially as a soon-to-be pregnant, unwed virgin. She's also tucked away in the small region of Galilee. Nobody comes from Nazareth. Yet God showed kindness to her. And through her, he would show kindness to Israel. Her hymn, a few pages later in Luke 1, 46 through 55, proves this. The Dutch theologian Herman Ritterboss writes, Mary's hymn points to the divine grace shown to her as evidence of God's pity on his people. And in that hymn, we see Mary declare things like this, For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. These are all testaments to God's kindness coming to his people. The 400 long years of silence are over. Israel is again about to taste the kindness of the Lord. When I was a kid, I can remember a time that I specifically and very vividly deeply hoped for kindness. I was playing down the street with my friends when the call came for everybody to go home. As my friends took off, I attempted to jump out of the tree that I was climbing. Only I found that my right foot had become wedged in the base of the trunk, where the two main branches split off. So instead of getting out of the tree, I fell backwards and kind of dangled and hung out from the back of the tree. Now, I was low enough that my head actually rested on the ground, but I had no ability to get my foot unstuck. I yelled for help with little fruit to my efforts. I'm still not sure how many minutes, it was probably seconds, passed by. But in those few moments, even if they were seconds, I hoped pretty desperately 
that kindness would come my way. And I didn't care who it was as long as my foot got loose. Thankfully, the kindness appeared in the form of the neighborhood jogger who just so happened to be running into our cul-de-sac at that very moment. He spotted me, came over, got my foot free. He was my hope of kindness, and his kindness meant my rescue. And what's more, we actually found out his last name was Coyle of no relation. Just a random act of kindness from a kin many eons before. But his kindness meant my rescue. And we see that the same truth is about to stand for Israel. The kindness of God is going to mean their salvation. The angel tells Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. The angel gives Mary a command. Calling the child Jesus is not simply a good name to put on the potential baby name list. No, Jesus must be the name of this child. Because the name points to God's steadfast love and faithfulness, his kindness that is coming. Now Luke offers no explanation in regarding the name Jesus. It is Matthew who directly links that name with salvation. When he says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But Luke is going to leave the rest of his gospel for the meaning of this name to unfold. As you read the rest of the book of Luke, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ makes it very clear that he came to save. But still, even a simple interpretation of the name Jesus emphasizes the kindness of God to save. Jesus literally can mean Yahweh help, Yahweh delivers, or Yahweh is salvation. And the context here in Luke chapter 1 is an allusion allusion to Isaiah chapter 7, that Yahweh is salvation, where that prophecy reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Through this child, born of spectacular means, God's Messiah, his promised one, had come to dwell with his people and to save them. The promise has arrived. There is no greater kindness the people of Israel could have hoped for than for God himself to come and to save. Israel was not some silly kid with a foot stuck in their tree. They were God's people in bondage and in darkness. They desperately needed and hoped and longed for God's kindness to come and save them. The promise of the Messiah would confirm God's everlasting kindness towards his people. He would come to them just as he promised. He had come to help. Standing this side of the cross, we obviously know precisely how Christ in his person and ministry, embodied the kindness of God. It is a kindness far surpassing the kind we typically celebrate around the Christmas season. It is the only kindness, to borrow our pop star's quote, that can truly heal, unite, and restore. Jesus extends the hope of God's kindness to a world lost, sick, and dying. He is the full and final revelation of God's abundant compassion 
of his people. But the announcement we see also reveals the hope that God will provide his king. God is not an absentee monarch. He's not standing far off from his citizens while they suffer. No, God is going to send the very ruler his people need and were promised to expect. Now again, hoping for a king might not sound like an actual hope that either we or the world around us has. I mean, especially for us as Americans, did we not start a revolution to throw off a king? And as human beings, aren't we not more prone to hope for the day when we're finally out from under authority? Whether it's our parents, our coaches, our teachers, or particular bosses. But the truth is, man was created to live and flourish under the good and righteous rule of God. Despite our best efforts to rebel, there is still something within us longing for what was. We hope to be ruled by a good, trustworthy, and benevolent king. Such hopeful longing comes out each and every election season or any other time a transition of power takes place. Emotions run high as people hope that this leader, whether new or incumbent, is the one that the good things are going to come. And hope then fails when it proves not to be the case. Gabriel announces to Mary that the king has come in the form of the child who is about to be formed in her womb. And he is a great king. Listen to what Gabriel tells Mary. He will be great. And he will be called son of the most high. Gabriel is to the point. Greatness marks this king. Now earlier, Gabriel made a similar statement to Zechariah about his son of promise. He said, that child will be great before the Lord. But notice, however, there's a difference in category. John's greatness lies in his ministry before the Lord. He is the one called to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He had a specific ministry, and that ministry was great. Jesus' greatness lies in himself. He is great because of who he is. That becomes clear in the, the additional identifier of Son of the Most High. The name Most High is an Old Testament name of God. It applies to God and to God alone. And it points to his supreme authority over all creation, every square inch. Melchizedek in Genesis 14 was called priest of the Most High God. Moses and David both sing praises to the Lord Most High in their respective end-of-life songs, found in both Deuteronomy 32 and 2 Samuel 22. So before we see this child is revealed as son of David, he is first son of God. And to be the son then means he holds a unique relationship. This baby that Mary is about to have will know and have an intimate relationship with God himself. And again, this makes sense in light of, as Luke is alluding here to Isaiah 7. The son, Emmanuel, is God with us. This king is no mere earthly human king. 
He's not some presidential candidate with a good resume, a good political history, and the financial backing to boot. He is the king that every king, past, present, and future, ultimately points to, no matter how great or awful they are. And he is the one, the king, on whom people can place their hope. But what is more, this king is not only great, he's about to sit on a great throne. Gabriel goes on, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Mary would not have missed this. If any other Israelite would have been sitting in the room at this time, they would not have missed it either. This king has an inheritance waiting for him, given by the Lord God himself. And that inheritance is none other than the throne of David. The throne of David represents all the hopes and dreams of Israel. J.C. read earlier, just moments ago, from 2 Samuel 7, where we see those hopes building. I won't read the whole thing, but simply verses 12 and 13. Where the Lord tells David, I will, raise up for, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon, the near fulfillment of this prophecy, was indeed great. He built the temple. He was the wisest man on earth. He expanded the borders and the wealth of Israel during his reign. But one better than Solomon was always going to come. He would do even more, much greater. And Gabriel has announced that that great son of David has arrived. What a glorious hope this is for Israel. Long had they endured their fair share of kings, most of them somewhere between absolutely awful and just straight bad. And long had they sat under foreign rule, for waiting for the day that their promised king would come. I would take a bet that after 400 more years of silence, hope probably seemed pretty dim, if not lost altogether. As I think about that, I can't help but think of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where we'd see that the race of man has gone ages without having a king. There's little hope that it remained or that a king would come. And as a result, we see man is divided, they're hurting, they're hopeless. But then we see the seeds of a king's possible return planted in the arrival of this rugged ranger from the north. And then as the story unfolds, we see his greatness revealed a little bit more. We see his claim to the throne come out. We see there's royal blood running through his veins. We simply find that he is a great man. He is one who could unite the race of man. He can lead them in battle. And he becomes the embodiment of their hopes and their dreams. And as this hope grows, it fills the people, the men of Middle Earth, with joy. And it motivates them to resist the darkness that is growing and threatening to take over. And it also draws them together. And again, this side of the cross, we witness, we know how Jesus is the hope of God's appointed king. He would take his throne, but not in the way we would think. He would take it, as Paul declares in Romans 1, by dying 
first and then rising again in power and taking his throne. His death and resurrection confirm his rightful place on the throne as the great king. We need not hope for another. He is the true king who has come to save his people. And he is coming again to bring his people to himself and to put all things under his feet. And this is the type of king that we all want. The type of king that we all hope for and yearn for. It's also the type of king, whether our world recognizes it or not, that they desperately hope for as well. Jesus is the great king seated on the throne. But finally, we also see that this hope is also announced that God will establish his kingdom. The people will not only have a king, they will also have a place. The people of God will not be left in exile. They will not die as wanderers with no place to call home. God has not abandoned his promise to provide a place for his people. No, this king who has come is bringing with him an eternal kingdom. Again, we may not often think of longing for a kingdom, but we certainly long for a place. Oftentimes, it's a place of permanent belonging. We want a place to call home. We want these places of belonging to have significance, to have meaning. We want them to be places that ultimately matter. It's why we're a part of so many different groups looking for places to call home, places to belong. And again, this flows from the very beginning. We were created to dwell in the place where God's presence was with his people. We had a place, we had a belonging, and both were lost. And human beings have been trying ever since to get it back. And Gabriel again comes to Mary announcing that this king is bringing an eternal kingdom, an eternal place for his people to dwell in. He says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. A Davidic king sitting on the throne forever, as we sang, is Israel's strength and consolation. It is their deepest yearning and desire. Again, we struggle to grasp this reality because all kingdoms and kings on earth that we have seen are only temporary. They go along with the words of Proverbs 27, 24, where the, where the, the writer asks, does a crown endure for all generations? We witness each and every day that all kingdoms and crowns have had and will continue to have an expiration date. We don't know the dates, but we can rest assured an end to each of them is coming. And such a reality can be both encouraging and discouraging. It can be encouraging when the regime is bad. We may not see the end, but there's hope that it will end and another one will come, maybe a better one. And it can be discouraging when the regime is a good one. All the benefits might not last. The good things might come to an end as well. And again, this is precisely why each and every transition of power feels like such a burden. No one knows if the next administration will be the good, the bad, or the ugly. 
If anything, elections seem to only foster the uneasy hopelessness of human kings and kingdoms. But thankfully, none of this applies to King Jesus and his kingdom. It is not temporary. It is not fleeting. It does not have an expiration date on it. His kingdom has come with his arrival in the flesh, and it will continue to advance until the day he returns, bringing with him its full consummation. And thankfully for us here today, it is not a kingdom isolated to a particular plot in the Middle East. Its reach is far greater. The king's subjects are not isolated to only the physical descendants of Abraham. It will include people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. In fact, it is precisely because Jesus came and was rejected by his physical people that the doors of salvation have swung open to Jew and Gentile alike. For even John in his prologue says that Jesus, the word, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This is why we can confidently declare that Jesus is Israel's strength and consolation and the hope of all the earth. The king is the savior, as Paul would repeatedly say throughout his letters, of Israel and Gentile alike. He reigns graciously over all those united to him by faith. And what is more, we see that this eternal kingdom will be marked by the character of the king himself. Without making a direct quote, Luke is alluding to Isaiah 9-6, when he says, And of his kingdom there will be no end. Because the prophet Isaiah prophesied in that passage, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice, righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The eternal kingdom of the Son of the Most High, the Son of David, is a kingdom where justice, righteousness, and peace reign. These cries are cries we have heard repeatedly in this year alone. People are longing for righteousness, justice, and peace here on earth. Essentially, they're longing for a kingdom. And while we should certainly pursue these things as citizens of the kingdom here on earth, we also must point people to the only place where they will truly be found, in the kingdom of the Son. Not the kingdom of America, not the kingdom of any other nation on this earth. True righteousness, justice, and peace can only be found in the kingdom of the Son of the Most High God. Failing to redirect people's hopes and dreams to the kingdom is encouraging them to place their hopes in things that will fail. Because in short, his kingdom is the place where each and every human being longs for, whether they recognize it or not. It is the place where the deepest need of every land and every people is met. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll know how this series, all of it, ends after the last battle. There's a very striking scene where a small group of animals and individuals are standing at the heels of the new Narnia. Aslan is showing them the land as they get ready to enter in. 
and the unicorn named Jewel gets really excited, starts neighing and, and stomping its feet as it looks, and he makes this profound declaration. Looking into the, to the kingdom of Aslan, if you will, he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked like this. And then he encourages everyone else with him, come further up, further in. This is the hope of Christ's kingdom. We belong here. It is our real home. Every morsel of justice, righteousness, and peace that we taste here is but a glimpse of the righteousness, justice, and peace that belongs in the kingdom. And every absence we feel of it here is a reminder that that kingdom is not here fully yet. But that kingdom is where each and every longing heart wants to be. All of our hopes have a permanent place, of having a permanent place, are finally answered with a resounding yes in Christ and his kingdom. There is one crown, one king, and one kingdom that will endure through all generations, and it has come now. Which all of this then begs the question of where is your hope this morning? Where is it this season, whatever this season looks like for you? And where has your hope been in this very strange and difficult year? I will admit that much of what has taken place this year, both nationally and in our own lives of my family, has felt a little bit more like an exercise in hopelessness. Human kindness seems lacking. Sure, there are moments, but they don't seem to undo the intense anger, the bitterness, the resentment, and the division that remains and is so strong in our culture today. Kings and kingdoms have not offered much hope either. Whatever party line you fall on, your party, its leaders, are going to fail. They are flawed. And this particular election season, maybe more than any others, has certainly shaken the confidence and the hope of many, whether you're on the right or the left or somewhere in the middle. Our hearts are longing. Our world is desperately hoping. And the only place for us to look is to Jesus Christ. He is our hope that God has showered us with kindness that he has come to save. He is our hope that God has set a king over his people and over all things. And he is our hope that he has established and given us a kingdom, a kingdom that satisfies all the hopes of our weary and longing hearts. This is the hope that we declare to ourselves, that we declare to one another, and that hopefully we are declaring day in and day out to a hopeless world. The hope of all the earth and the dear desire of every nation is truly and finally Jesus Christ. So let us be filled with hope then, not just today, not just in Advent, but let us be filled with hope for the rest of this year, 
whatever it throws at us. And every year after, as the people of God living in the kingdom of God, where our good and loving and faithful king reigns, all of our hopes and longings find their satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that in Christ you have shown us kindness. The kindness that has brought us sinners, rebellious ones, into your family. Forgiven us, redeemed us. And on top of that, God, we thank you that you have given us a king. A good king. A faithful king. A trustworthy king in Christ. May we worship him. May we adore him. And God, what is more still, you've given us a kingdom, a place to belong with you, where all the tears will be wiped away, where the longings of all of our hearts will be satisfied in you and in you alone. Would you give us hope this morning? Give us hope this season. And may we point a world filled with hopelessness to the only place where true hope can be found. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.